Let me invite um, our other panelists up onto the stage to, to, to dive, dive deeper into some of these um, issues. Um, so we're delighted uh, to have joining Michelle um, on the stage, um, several distinguished colleagues who will be known to you, Admiral uh, Phil Davidson, um, Evan uh, Medeiros, and, uh, and, and the Honorable uh, Kim Beasley. Um, welcome. <laughs> So Phil, Phil, Phil Davidson, um, uh, as many of you know, was the 25th commander of the U.S. Indo-PACOM uh, from 2018 to 2021. He commanded the U.S. Fleet Forces Command in the Atlantic, the 6th Fleet uh, Strike Force NATO uh, in Europe, and Aircraft Carrier strike group, strike group. He's also held key policy positions in the NSC, the Pentagon, State Department and uh, has a number of uh, academic and think tank affiliations. Um, Evan Medeiros is um, currently professor and Penner Family Chair in Asian Studies in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, where I am on leave from. Um, Evan has a number of books on U.S.-China relations. He's a well-regarded China scholar um, and has a new book, Cold Rivals, The New Era of U.S.-China Strategic Conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well played. <laughs> which, so rush out and get one. Which you didn't bring uh, 200 free copies? <laughs> no. And this is a book you worked on uh, with both U.S. and Chinese uh, authors. So it's, yeah. it's actually quite rare. Um, I've done these in the past, as have you. But today, to have a joint assessment of um, U.S.-China relations in the international system where U.S., American, and Chinese authors are both contributing is actually quite a rare thing, and uh, Evan pulled that off, so it's, it's well worth reading. Um, Evan um, was on the uh, National Security Council staff of the White House for six years. I did almost five years and barely survived. I don't know how you did I, it. I had, I had to outdo you. Mark. You did. You won up to me. Uh, in the Obama administration, he was director for China, Taiwan, Mongolia, and then the senior director uh, for East Asia. And um, Kim Beasley, everyone knows, he's on our board. That's his most important uh, identifier, and also as the chair of the board for the Perth U.S. Asia Center, run by Gordon Flake. He was the 33rd governor of Western Australia, a leader uh, in the Labor Party, um, deputy prime minister, uh, uh, defense minister, and uh, a very effective ambassador in, in Washington, D.C. So I want to broaden uh, to the global before we get into the U.S.-China and Indo-Pacific. Um, the, um, uh, the U.S. has to think globally. We didn't used to like to, but we have to. There's a famous Herb Block, uh, the cartoonist for the Washington Post, uh, for decades and decades had a cartoon uh, in the Post uh, during World War II where General MacArthur, who commanded in this region, is meeting with George Marshall, the chief of staff, and he's brought in a globe of the world, and it's a block. <laughs> and he has Asia on top, and then the European theater's underneath. And he says to General Marshall, we need all the resources for our theater. And General Marshall, in this cartoon, says, actually, in the Pentagon, we prefer to use a round globe. <laughs> um, so um, I'll, I want to talk for a little bit with the panel about how uh, the US and its allies and partners uh, prioritize, manage resources, manage attention span, when right now the whole world is um, in flames in some ways. Um, and Phil, I know you suffered through this <laughs> at Indo-PACOM, um, uh, and I wanted to start with you. Um, you know, you were, the counter-ISIS was happening when you were Indo-PACOM, and a lot of things were happening. How do you think about Indo-PACOM's mission, um, resources, uh, attention from Washington when you're a COCOM, when you're commanding in one part of the world? like this one. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the heart of it, you have to carry on, right? Uh, I had specific 
you know, guidance on the overall national strategy. Um, I had the department's guidance on um, what the priorities were in the country, and you know, you would say every operational low strategic commander always has resource shortcomings in the history of warfare. <laughs> you have to deal with it. And um, that's the way you kind of stepped out. Uh, I, I would say, and I, this goes right, what I think is largely one of the main themes of the conference, you have to lean on your alliances and partnerships across the region to, you know, affect your strategy. Um, my conversations with Australia and Japan especially were extraordinarily transparent and really helpful to me. And I, in large respect, I think where we are today was perhaps sparked in those uh, conversations. And I'm quite proud of the work that Indopaycom did during that time frame. And that's a helpful reminder of what Michelle said about the agency allies can have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're blunt. Yeah. Um, so Kim, as you know well as a historian and as a, a policymaker, um, Australia has a long history well beyond this region, in the Middle East in particular, in Western Europe. Um, so thinking globally as a U.S. ally is not a new thing for Australia, but as defense minister when you're in Washington, how did you handle this? How did you, how'd you keep uh, Australia relevant, the U.S. Uh, engaged? When, so many, when you were in Washington, of course, the Middle East was also um, not stable. Well, uh, it was actually quite easy. Um, I'm, I'm glad to have Evan here. Uh, my life became impossible as an ambassador when two things happened. First, Kurt left the State Department, <laughs> and then Evan left the uh, National Security Council. And I could always rely on them for detailed advice on all the things that we ought to be doing. Uh, they're just terrific. Uh, there's a habit, in, people don't last long in the National Security Council because they were, it's literally 24-7 for them. And the only way you could tell a difference, and I'd sometimes have Evan come over for a plate of cheese and, uh, and a couple of drinks, a cigar actually, more importantly. <laughs> and um, the only way you could tell it was uh, the, the weekend is he'd wear jeans. So he'd be in the office wearing jeans at the weekend, but otherwise he's wearing a suit. The, um, and then uh, PACOM, which I still call SyncPAC because I just can't get on with the new nomenclature. And um, Cap Weinberger was always disturbed about things that we were doing. And so he used to plead with me every time we turned up in DC, please, when you're doing everything, anything, will you get in touch with SyncPAC? and tell them what we're doing because we do view the region through the prism of SyncPAC and we take an awful lot of notice of what uh, SyncPAC was uh, saying. There was a chap who headed up at that time, uh, Admiral Crow, I mm -hmm. recollect. And Crow was obsessed with conventional submarines because it had been his last active command. Mm -hmm. So um, <clears throat> that's, that's quite nothing to do with it. Look, I think the most important thing now is that um, uh, in terms of where we're headed on uh, the atmospheric that we're creating, the last two Osmin uh, reports need to be read because they're very different from previous Osmin reports. If you look at them carefully, what you see is the United States positioning itself in Australia. 
And when I was uh, um, uh, ambassador, it was sort of there in the so-called uh, rebalance towards uh, the Asia-Pacific, but it didn't have much, much put into it. Now what the United States is telling us is that they have worked out a different axis. They used to have only one axis on China. It was basically east-west through the Confucian societies. Now the Americans have added to that access north-south. So that puts them through the Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Christian societies as well. But more importantly, it is uh, for operational purposes, an angle on China where China is not well, well structured. And that's, uh, that's important. I think every now and then, when I was looking at um, uh, statements on the uh, AUKUS legislation by, who's the admiral? Anyway, <laughs> it was his statement to last okay. week. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you can see something of that in the way in which he is testifying about the submarine. So I, I, when I was an ambassador, the most important, I used to say back to Australia, the most important meeting anywhere on the globe during the course of the year was the US-China Strategic and Economic Dialogue. And as ambassadors, we made a huge effort to try and I, I, I just interrogate um, all the American comments, uh, people both before and after it, to get a clear uh, idea of how the US was handling it. We were happy. Um, in those days, of course, the world talked about multipolarity, but there was a subset of the multipolarity argument, and that was the duopoly. United States and China. How do you get the United States and China to, to marry up objectives? And that's the most important thing. Everybody objected to the idea of a world duopoly of the United States and China, except us. I used to say to Americans, such good news. Uh, just keep on going. And they would say, we're not doing that. So that was the, but nevertheless, that was, uh, that was the, uh, uh, the, uh, the atmospheric uh, of the times. And I do know when it changed and the American attitude began to get re-educated, was not actually in 2015 and 2017. It was Xi's visit to the United States early in 2012. And all hopes were on Xi. This is the reformer. This is the guy who's going to take the next step, take us a point further. And then you have, uh, I was just reading my cable on it the other day home from Kurt, is that we could not, we were totally baffled by Xi's attitude towards us. He only agreed with us on one thing, and that was Iran. Everything else, he stood us up. He stiff-armed us. South China Sea, Taiwan, you name it. He stiff-armed us. This is not what we expected. And maybe this indicates that things are going to go in a somewhat different direction. I think what we have to do uh, with the United States is, firstly, we have to acknowledge that this shift is taking place in American strategic perspectives and tell the Americans that we will do it that we are prepared to have the facilities used in that way. And um, the Americans need to comprehend 
that we have a, and I'll finish one more thing on this, they need to comprehend that they are not alone and that other people want to take responsibility. The best moment I had when I was <coughs> ambassador in the president's office was um, when Abbott was visiting. And Abbott was sort of the anti-Obama. Everything Obama believed in Abbott didn't. And um, the... Uh, I remember that visit. And, uh, <coughs> and it was quite intriguing because I'd spent all night writing weasel words for Abbott and he didn't look at them because I realised that the excellent briefings that we normally get from PMNC and Foreign Affairs were not really going to hack it. And, um, and then the conversation went on. Uh, Obama in his erudite way sort of presented this and that and you could see on his words, and they're always elegant, hook, 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 that he's got a pillory Abbott with because we had a huge gathering there of the American cognoscenti or nomenclatura or, or responsory, whichever way you want to look at it. And Abbott, and then he said, uh, Tony, you might like to say something before we get into the discussion of substance. And Abbott said, well, yes, there is something I want to say, uh, Barack. Firstly, we've got no complaints. We're happy with US policy. Secondly, we don't want anything from you. We, can, we know we can get everything that we want, but we want you to understand that we understand that you're about to get into a lot of trouble in the Middle East. And when you do, we're going to be there in numbers. Um, and I kept getting reported back to me by people who'd you know, been through the White House or whatever, say, we need more Tony Abbotts. That's what Obama was saying. We need more Tony Abbotts. So, uh, so I think that on us and the Japanese, uh, a new maturity is being visited. You have to have the American back, and it has to be obvious that you do. You know, the, that lesson is important. The most, in the five years I was on the NSC staff, the most effective ambassadors were people like Michael Foley from Australia, Katoriro from Japan, who go in to see Connie Rice, or sometimes the president, and would spend the first 15 minutes on what they were doing to help before they didn't ask. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, yeah, the only, but I learned something important now, though. Um, Michael Foley and Dennis Richardson never offered me cigars. Mm -hmm. so, really? Uh, yeah. Idiots. Yeah. <laughs> so important note for Kevin Rudd. Um, uh, so Evan, you were there when Tony Abbott told President Obama um, it's going to get hot in the Middle East. Yeah. So, and you and I lived this experience. I was there, you know, for 9/11. How did you think about keeping the focus on East Asia, you know, mm. when you could see the counter-ISIS campaign and all these other things, which are more violent, more immediate, more emotional, um, command attention politically, and in some ways, the Asia job is really about uh, being disciplined uh, yeah. most of the time. Occasionally, North Disciplined Korea or somebody focus, provides a crisis. Sure. So, how did you? Keep on the ball. You know, for us in the latter part of the Obama administration, it wasn't it wasn't as difficult as um, it may look in retrospect. Simply because Xi Jinping, beginning around 2013, 2014, was starting to become a lot more aggressive and assertive. So the Chinese were making the case for more and better U.S. involvement in the Asia Pacific, and we had more allies coming to us and partners coming to us saying we need some help. And that uh, was certainly true with Japan when the um, 
in fall of 2013, Mike, you may recall, the uh, Chinese deployed the air defense identification zone over the East China Sea, clearly trying to undercut Japanese administration, right? So that was a sort of common point to come together. Of course, in beginning in late 2013, 2014, you had the Chinese beginning this whole process of land reclamation, which we were all trying to figure out, which of course pulled the Vietnamese and the Filipinos closer to us. It created a pretext for Aquino to sort of really, um, the president of the Philippines at the time, to really move on uh, negotiating or finalizing what's now become the EDCA, the EDCA agreement, the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, which effectively provides us the legal basis for um, sort of quasi-military sites, to go back in in a significant way uh, just short of, of Clark and Subic. So it, you know, in many ways the Chinese made it a lot easier for us to do so. And when I think about the China challenge today, um, because of the way Xi Jinping has um, sought to present China to the world, uh, and because it's generated so much backlash, it's in many, in many ways made it very easy for the United States. Um, whereas in the Obama administration, we really struggled to coordinate more on the China challenge with Europe after the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the Chinese alignment with Russia over that. It, it uh, completely changed that conversation. And now you had European leaders being very concerned about uh, the fact that China might draw the wrong lessons from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and go after Taiwan. Um, you begin to have European political leaders, <coughs> leaders start talking about de-risking from China so they don't face the same degree of vulner vulnerability. So I, th I think um, really it's the, the mistakes that the Chinese made uh, pr created a perfect pretext for the U.S. to be able to Is it fair engaged. to say... I hope so, because I wrote this. Um, is it fair to say that the Obama administration did not come in expecting quite this China, this, the establishment of the strategic and economic dialogue, uh, uh, you know, the Deputy Secretary of State Jim Steinberg's um, perhaps not completely coordinated statement about yeah. the need for strategic reassurance, but there was an effort um, coming out of the Bush administration, where U.S.-China relations were pretty stable, mm -hmm. to add more scaffolding, more structure, keep the stability going, make it more predictable, that seemed to be the opening play, mm -hmm. but she had other ideas. Is that a fair summation of what happened? So I think the key, the key fact is, you, you're right, I mean, the Obama administration early on adopted the, the Bush administration playbook, very much so. Dialogue, engagement, strategic conversations, but here's the key fact. That was Hu Jintao. It was a fundamentally different government. And so it was the transition from Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping that changed the strategic challenge that we're talking about yeah. today. And, you know, uh, even as a, as a trained academic in international relations, the reality is, is whether you're a realist, a liberalist, a liberal institutionalist, a constructivist, the great man theory of international politics really, um, it, plays an important role, and people matter. And it was the uh, ascension to power of Xi Jinping and the fact that he had fairly radical views about how to change uh, the party in China and state society relations, and we've only seen that accelerate as he sought to make Chinese politics more Leninist, he sought to make Chinese economics more statist, and then of course um, make diplomacy more aggressive and assertive. So the real, the real reason why we switched from the Bush playbook of, of 
um, sort of responsible stakeholder using strategic dialogues to something that looked um, like we needed to uh, be a lot more uh, co coercive and begin to build coalitions with capable and like-minded partners was simply because Xi Jinping changed. So as the China challenge changed with the new leader, our strategy had to had to change. And to be honest, we were there first before before you know, I think a lot of others. I mean, Japan was very closely in step with us. I mean, there were some differences with Japan. There were some differences, you know, with Australia. But eventually, over time, you know, I think that that because of the combination of the emergence of the Arab strategic competition, I think because of COVID, and then of course because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it created this sort of shift in global politics. Mm. Uh, you know, this sort of new era. The, the idea that the post-Cold War era is over that created a um, fact pattern that now uh, American allies and partners in both Asia and Europe can agree on. And to me, that's, that's what's really different about the strategic environment today. I mean, the, you know, Kurt talks about one theater, this idea that Asia is invested in Europe, Europe's invested in Asia in ways that we basically haven't seen in the post-Cold War era. We'll hear from Garana Gershkich this afternoon in our Allies and Partners discussion. Um, often in a conference in this region on Allies and Partners, you would not include NATO. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it, it is not quite one theater, but those um, dimensions are It's mo mo moving more yeah. in that direction. I mean, the yeah. fact that NATO has now actively talked about Taiwan publicly yeah. uh, and, and talked about Taiwan in its strategic documents. I mean, yeah. It never would have happened 10 years ago. And I mean, Japan, my understanding is now has an office in Brussels to liaise. Yeah, with and, and I would give, which is a great I would give, development. I would give Abe a little more credit. He came to power again in Tokyo the same time as Xi Jinping. And in some ways, he was Winston Churchill in the interwar years, sort of alone on this and, and, and somewhat isolated at first. Alone in what sense, Mike? Alone in the sense that his, I would argue, and we can let Aki Nagashima speak to this if he wants to this afternoon, um, he was putting out in 2013 a strategy for competition with China that was comprehensive. It was one of the first. Um, and I think with things like free and open Indo-Pacific, the elevation of the Quad, these were all things that Abe was championing 10 years ago that the rest of us saw the logic of. But at first he was, you know, cautious, alone. But remember, Abe at the same time also wanted to continue and grow Japanese trade and investment. Of course. With, with, with China as well. So, so in many ways, it was a dual-handed strategy which made sense. And that's why it connected very well with the, I mean, remember in the Obama administration, we had the pivot strategy, which was growing alliance and partnerships, right? right? Japan, Korea, I mean, people forget. I mean, we completely rewrote the bilateral defense guidelines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, know, I, what I'm saying Obama. is that, that Abe's grand strategy is national security strategy, which Nobu Kanehara wrote, who's here in 2013, sort of pre pre presented the blueprint of how you compete without catastrophe how you compete uh, strategically without um, losing the, because the ironic thing about the Abe administration was his support rate was high because of trade with China so that he could build a consensus for a strategy of competition. It's the weird world we live in and he was one of the first to navigate it. So Evan and I did a conference at Georgetown, I'm trying to remember, four or five years ago because there were voices um, on the right and the left in both uh, uh, Republican Democratic parties saying that everyone who had worked on China before was naive and should have seen 
this coming. Oh, no. So we had a conference, uh, Evan will recall, with uh, pretty much every um, person who had worked on China policy since Nixon. And we, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, Democrats, we all agreed it wasn't our fault. There was a consensus on that. <laughs> um, um, but there were different explanations, as you'll recall, Evan. Some people, I think a majority pointed to what you said, which is agency, the great man theory, the impact of Xi himself. But I want to give uh, Michelle and Kim and Phil a chance to give their views on what happened. Because our polls show, uh, Chicago Council, Lowy, other polls show, not only the Australian public, but the American public was kind of optimistic about China yeah. uh, until the last few years. So there was, there was a broad consensus that engagement uh, could work. And now you hear many voices, particularly in the US, saying it was never going to work. Uh, is that right? What, what happened? I'll start with Michelle and then let uh, uh, Kim and Phil um, add to what Evan yeah. uh, mentioned. I don't, I don't think you can say it was never going to work. I, again, I having been in, in the, the final stages when we were doing the strategic economic dialogue and we were focused on you know who was a leader and his coterie. I, we were getting traction in meaningful ways and it felt like there was a possibility to keep you know moving. It wasn't you know we still would have the Taiwan diatribe from our PLA counterparts and you know, but but there was it was productive. Iran it was, and North Korea. Yeah, it was particularly on areas outside of the region. You know, Iran, North. Korea, I mean, just so it real. But the, there really was a change um, in the whole dynamic on the Chinese side when she came in, and um, you know, and I think it, it it was a different set of behaviors from looking President Obama in the eye and saying, you don't have to worry about these new islands, we're never going to militarize them, <laughs> and mm. then going ahead and doing it, to just uh, a much more um, forceful uh, posture and stance in mm. the region, particularly over disputed areas and so forth. So, um, you know, I, I do think that the, the change of leadership had a profound uh, impact and you know, I think there was also a period where, you know, there were a lot of people who wanted to, you know, hold on to the to the responsible stakeholder theory and keep trying. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you get enough counter fact data points that that's just not working and you need to mm -hmm. adopt a different approach. And, and I think the biggest challenge is, you know, too often I hear the United States blamed as, oh, you've gotten too aggressive with China. Why are you so aggressive with China? Why aren't you working to cooperate? And I think the, the truth is that with Xi, um, the focus shifted and there was much less interest in cooperation, um, much less interest even in areas where we have shared interests, whether it's climate change or risk reduction. Um, and, you know, we, it, that it's just gone in a very different direction. So. I think the Evans explanation really resonates with me in terms of what I sort of experienced. Mm. So it's it is largely it's not the Thucydides sort of structural rising power. It's, it's mm. she himself no. is is a I mean there part are certainly there are certainly structural elements that feed into a more competitive environment, but I I also believe that a different Chinese leader could be managing yeah. those dynamics in a way that would create much more opportunity for communication, deconfliction, risk reduction, even collaboration where our interests. Uh... I was in um, 
probably most of President Bush's meetings with Hu Jintao, and I remember talking to Evan about the, the meetings with uh, President Obama and Xi, and the tone was just completely totally different. different. Totally different. Mm -hmm. it, at one point, um, uh, Hu Jintao would always try to reassure President Bush that he wasn't trying to challenge the U.S., mm -hmm. and he would list uh, all his problems. Yes. And he would say, Developing every year, 25 million Chinese move to the cities. That's the population of Australia. And the translator, the interpreter garbled it. Mm -hmm. So it came out as every year, 25 million Australians move to Chinese cities. <laughs> so we had to sort of slow down and rewind. And, uh, but who went out of his way? Remember, he, instead of peaceful rise, he said, no, no, it's peaceful development. Uh, completely different ideological frame experience. Kim, where's your, where's your analyst? Well, it's entirely Xi's fault. Okay. I, absolutely. I, and I'd sustain that argument. The mess that has been created in relations with the, uh, the region and the insecurities in it, the rest of it, is entirely down to Xi and nobody else. Because the Americans maintained for a very long time a willingness for constructive engagement with China, willingness to be helpful to China. I mean, it, it is the direct repudiation of Deng Xiaoping letter by letter of what Xi has done. And um, uh, if Deng put a timetable on it, the timetable when what the Chinese have shifted into being permitted was 2050. And uh, until then, the Chinese were supposed to have a peaceful face to the world around them. I think there are one or two unlucky steps. I do remember the Scarborough Shoals and the Filipinos broke the rules on the kabuki dance, which had gone on for a long time, about whether or not you know, they were allowed to um, police the shoals and that sort of thing. And um, I, was, uh, I was being assured by the administration, we're going to put in a destroyer to cut the chain. The destroyer will go through and cut the chain. And uh, we will, because uh, we can't afford to have this sort of stuff developing. And, um, and the destroyer didn't go through and, and, and didn't cut the chain. And when I made inquiries of it, it was, the Filipinos can be quite mad in policy crazy brave. We do not want American policy to be controlled by the Filipinos. So it was a, uh, it was a sort of different... The US had not made a mental adjustment to Xi because they didn't need to. Because mm. Xi has been a Xi in progress. So um, Xi as he was when he was a deputy is not Xi as he is now. He's just got worse and worse and worse. Mm since he's been in there. So now you've got to hope that um, at some point of time a faction will win in China, and we won't know about it because we haven't a clue what's going on in China, um, will we'll come into, uh, into power and point them in a different direction. The fellow who looked as though he might was that Li Kun Kwang, as they, but he got purged effectively. And just died. And just died, yes. That was even more unfortunate. But, the, uh, but, but there are people in China who don't cop this. China's huge. And they've got hundreds of opinions all over the place. But, um, and, and so you, you want to be prepared to see if there's light. 
There needs to be light because she has moved way too quickly in the direction in which he's going with a society completely unprepared for it. The economy is poor compared to what it's been. The Chinese demographic is beyond horrific, beyond horrific. They're rapidly losing population. They're going to keep on going. I mean, I don't know what the last couple of years, but um, a couple of years ago, 43% of Chinese pregnancies ended in abortion. And the people being aborted were basically women, or girls were, were being aborted. I mean, to be a woman in China is to live a nightmare. And, um, and she said, you can have three children. And the response of the women of China is, you have three children. Because <laughs> we're not going to be in it. Yeah. Uh, it's a, uh, so if you go, it's 125 men to 100 women. Here it's sort of 53 women to 50 men. Most of the West, 51 to 50. And, uh, and it's made worse in China because the natural rate of, uh, uh, of uh, infertility amongst women of childbearing age is about 3%. In China, it's 20. So it's not only 125 to 100, it's really 125 to 80. Mm. And uh, that is because of bad abortions. That's, that's basically what's produced that situation. Nobody ever thinks about this. There's a great bloke, I, I, I advise you all, Yi Nanjiang. He's an OBS and Gyni man, but he's basically a mass data OBS and Gyni man. So he wrote a great book in 27 called Big Country, Empty Nest. And he does blog in China, Weibo or whatever it is they blog on, but, um, but and the Chinese government doesn't interfere with it or criticise it <laughs> because they think he might be right. <laughs> and um, that's interesting. So, Phil, I want to get your view on this the spotlights on Xi, mm -hmm. see if you agree or disagree, but I also want to maybe break up the consensus a bit. Because if you look at the PLA uh, strategy, posture, doctrine, what we see today didn't start with Xi in many ways. Okay. It has, you could argue it started with the 95-96 Taiwan crisis, oh, or 2008-2009 yeah. when Hu Jintao was at least nominally the chair of the Central Military Commission. The A2AD island chain uh, Indian Ocean strategy, it's not new. Mm -hmm. So just to sort of, you know, push back on the consensus, yeah. it, it, the PLA strategy doesn't strike me as something that's new. Um, when you were sitting in Indo-Pacom looking at today, do you see a sharp departure with Xi or is it a bit more continuity? It, it, I, I mean, to me, clearly there's an inflection point and it, to be clear, I agree completely with the analysis about this um, being all about Chairman Xi. Um, you can see, in a, uh, I had the occasion earlier this year to get together with many of the former PACOM commanders, everyone that was living but one. And um, we talked about the size and capability and the operational patterns of what we were seeing with the PLA. And you can see that the pre-Shi commanders were somewhat shocked at the change in the force levels, right, the structure, but the capability sets that were coming apparent to them as well. Um, but just as shocking was the, the change in deployment patterns, mm -hmm. how they were evolving, not only in the Western Pacific, but globally, into the Central Pacific, in and around US territories, um, in and around uh, allies. These, these all kind of relate back to the 2012 timeframe. Um, so, you know, mm -hmm. the PLA is kind of a separate matter. 
um, as I look back over the course of my career, there, there's always been a level of, um, well, I'll be frank, a, a level of arrogance that seemed outsized to their capability um, that was a little shocking in, in public forums. And, and that has persisted. Um, and it explains, to a certain extent, some of the bad behaviors you see in the tactical environments, plane to plane, ship to ship, um, which aren't endemic and, and um, uh, problematic in the sense that I, I believe any of those things are gonna cause us to go to war. Um, but they are problematic in the sense of uh, how professionals operate you know, in international sea and airspace and how they should be treating each other because it's, it's out of the norm mm -hmm. how they behave. So I wanna pivot to exactly that. Yeah. Uh, point, which is how dangerous is it? Yeah. In our survey uh, that Jared and Victoria just um, briefed, 49% of Australians think war is uh, very or somewhat likely. Mm -hmm. It's down. It's down, I think, in part because of the Albanese government's diplomacy with Beijing. But, but half, roughly, of Australians. In some polls in Japan, I, I think, it's about 80%. Yeah. Um, how dangerous is it, Phil? And then we'll get everyone else in as well. Yeah, I, you know, I've always been kind of uh, uh, a little upset at the, the, the repeating of this language of miscalculation, right? Because it's a Chinese talking point. They're trying to get us to end our activities in the theater without, you know, having to physically deter, you know, in and of themselves, right, of, of our activities. Um, if you look back at the history of even just naval operations, uh, with the Soviets, with others. We've never gone to war over something going bump in the night. Um, it, you know, we need to be thinking about miscalculation in the terms of a misreading of the will yes. <laughs> and commitment of, you know, the alliance structures that we have out here in the United States, uh, the capability of our forces, things like that, the things that really go to the roots of deterrence. Uh, roots of deterrence. Um, the way that um, our forces, uh, Indo-PACOM, United <coughs> States forces, the way Australian forces, the way our Japanese forces conduct themselves in this theater are in pursuit of the status quo. They are consistent with international law and always have been. There isn't any kind of nuanced changes to it. Um, and it, and it, 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 it demonstrates not only a level of professionalism between the three of us that has you know, paved its way to deepening the alliance, not only in a strategic sense, but in the tactical sense, plane to plane and ship to ship, um, but also I, I think shows and demonstrates to the region you know, the level of competence and professionalism that is here. And, and we need to persist with that despite Chinese talking points and propaganda outlets that are trying to chase us out of the theater by their language. Mm. The PLA does not want us to be comfortable right. <laughs> operating. Right. They, they want this sense of uh, right. risk and tension. Evan, um, uh, how dangerous? There's the accident thing, which Phil just described as um, rarely a cause of war, actually. Yeah. But then there's the intent piece. Right. You know, I mean, look, a crisis could come about, obviously, two ways. Number one, accident or miscalculation. And that's real because the Chinese have decided that they're going to assume more risk in their air-to-air, sea-to-sea encounters to try and push us back. Right, and that's not just us; it's you know allies and partners, Australia and and Canada. And then, of course, there's the other pathway, which is a deliberate action, which is they misread our will and our capability, and you know decide to do something about Taiwan. But I think there's a broader point I want to make before we run out of time, which is, you know, the U.S.-China relationship today 
we're in a totally different world than we've ever been in before. And we sort of lack the language to talk about it. Nobody really likes using the term Cold War because it's obviously evocative of, of a history that doesn't map nicely onto the US-China relationship. But the reality is, is we're in a world now where the relationship is broad spectrum competition and will continue. It's military competition, it's security competition, it's technology competition, and increasingly it's a competition of ideas, ideas about domestic and global governance. You, you can call it ideology. I, ideology, again, is evocative of Marxism versus capitalism, which is, I think, um, confuses things. But we have to understand we are in a long-term broad-spectrum competition. And no matter what happens in the next few months between Biden and Xi, you know, Kishida and Xi, Albanese and Xi, that's not going to change the structural features of the relationship. And in particular, because of the nature of these four issues, security, technology, um, uh, military affairs and ideas, because they're so nested and they overlap with one another, it's going to be very, very difficult to compartmentalize issues in ways that allow us to manage that competition. So we're in a very, very different world. And importantly, um, domestic politics is now playing as great a role in the geopolitics of the US-China relationship um, as ever before. And I think that that worries me because I just finished a, a paper for the Asian Society on this. When you look at the changes in American domestic politics, so that's congressional politics, electoral politics, interest group politics, public opinion, and you look at the same things on the Chinese side, what you see is forces separate from the deliberate intentions of leaders on both sides um, creating incentives for more and better competition. I mean, just look at the role of the US Congress. I mean, the last major, the last five pieces of legislation on China didn't really have to do with the administration. They all came from the Congress. And of course, we all saw you know, Pelosi's visit. And in the game that Mike and his team set up, right, one of, one of the precipitating factors in a Taiwan crisis was two very senior members of Congress going over to Taiwan saying we need to reestablish relations with Taiwan. And the, the reason I highlight this is because domestic politics is something that um, is an area that's very, very complicated and difficult for an executive to control. So that's where allies and partners can actually play an enormously important role. In other words, you know, if, if Australian policymakers come to Washington, talk to our political leaders, whether in the Congress or in the executive, and say, hey, some of these things that you're thinking about, we know that politically it may play well for you in your down-ballot election. Yep. But it's going to make our world incredibly difficult. And oh, by the way, we're really worried that actually it might start a crisis. So we're now in a world of the US-China relationship where the competition is broad spectrum. The incentives are to accelerate the competition. The traditional, let's call it, sources of stability or ballast in the relationship have diminished. And the drivers of domestic politics are only growing. I think it's, it, we're entering into a period where the role of allies and partners in the region to come to Washington and sort of give us your view to serve as a perhaps a source of ballast or stability as the domestic political pressures grow. I think that's going to be very, very important. I, by the way, um, since this may be your last chance, one more time the book. <laughs> Cold Rivals. So it's a collection of Americans uh, and Chinese that were looking at three questions. How did we get here? How did we get to this era of strategic competition? Number two, what is it going to be all about? And we look at the 
economic uh, dimensions, technology dimensions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then where is it going to take us? And it's a pretty sobering assessment from some very, very smart people. And the reality is, is the, the relationship, I think the best that you can say is that eventually over time, we might reach a point of sort of managed competition, something that looks like a competitive coexistence. But that's the best case scenario. Um, What's much more likely is sort of this sort of slow burn towards rivalry over time that may or may not be punctuated by crises. I mean, one of the big, big ideas that comes out of many of the different chapters is the Chinese side, largely driven by Xi Jinping's own view of the world and his own policy preferences. He simply does not believe in the concept of strategic restraint um, and the idea that uh, if both parties accept some degree of restraint in either force structure or uh, behavior in the sea or on the air, uh, serves their interest. And the idea of strategic restraint really only became relevant between the US and the Soviet Union after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we sort of very much say, like, does the US-China relationship need a near-death near experience in order for both sides? Right. But, but that's sort of, but my point is, Kim, that's sort of where we are. We, we have a leadership that has such a determined view about what their ambitions are. I think they have an outsized view on what their capabilities are, and they're basically pushing and probing the boundaries. So we're, yep. we're in a, we're, there, there's a 1950s quality yep. to where we are in the US-China relationship. Both sides are, are concerned about the other. They're pushing and probing the boundaries. They're trying to figure out what, what risks they're willing to run, what costs they're willing to pay, and it hasn't really been established. Mm -hmm. And that's why um, the United States needs to work in lockstep with Japan, Australia, others in East Asia to help set those boundaries for China. Because if you don't set the boundaries, they're just going to keep pushing. So let's, um, we're going to wrap up, <clears throat> and I want to give the other panelists uh, a minute or two each. Um, but in particular on this question, where does this end, <laughs> is, is, is the scenario uh, Evan and his co-authors from the U.S. and China spelled out uh, uh, at best managed competition where we're heading. Um, the baseball legend Yoga Berra famously said predictions are difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> um, so I'm not asking for a prediction per se, but, but, but I guess I am. <laughs> um, where, where does this go? And is it, is it, back to our discussion on Xi, is it about navigating the Xi era? Is this a century-long reality? Um, how do you see it? We'll, we'll start with you, Michelle, and then hear from Kim and Phil. Well, I think, I think as long as Xi is the leader in China, if we can manage the competition short of conflict, we will be doing very, very well. Whether there's a, a different kind of leadership that's possible, I don't see signs of that yet, but I would love to be wrong on that. And it may be possible that a better outcome than simply avoiding conflict and managing competition might be possible in the future. Um, some of that may change, uh, depend on what happens structurally inside China. But I, I, I do want to um, just underscore the, I, I agree with Phil that, you know, a, an accident like a P3 type of situation that we experienced before is unlikely to stimulate a full conflict. But I think the, the strategic miscalculation is very real, whether it's she underestimating 
the resolve and capability of the U.S. and its allies in the region, or like Putin, overestimating the, you know, in, a, in the Chinese system, it's not exactly, um, you know, a career-promoting move to dissent or tell the boss all your problems and why you're not ready. So he, he is at risk of overestimating his own PLA. But the lack of um, any kind of real, honest dialogue on strategic stability at a time when, you know, the Chinese are rapidly developing their nuclear arsenal, um, at a time when the PLA's doctrine is focused on trying to prevent U.S. power projection by early attacks in space and on cyber. Their assumption is you attack critical infrastructure in the United States, and the president and the public will panic and oh, we don't, we won't, you know, we don't want to pr project power in to respond to defend Taiwan. The truth is, you take down the electricity grid around a U.S. military base, you're going to, you're going to take down the power of hospitals. Americans will die, and that will actually force a president into the conflict. And we have to have a forum to talk about that sort of stuff, to disabuse them of some of their fundamentally wrong assumptions, because it's that kind of miscalculation that could really lead us into a war that nobody wants. Kim, do we just survive, or can we bend history and get back try, to a more try productive? To, try to survive Xi, because Xi has made sure there's no other Xi. Yeah. So uh, when Xi goes, it's almost invariably, I think, going to be the case that we move to a collective leadership again. So it's really only Xi, I think, that we have to survive. The only other thing I'd say is we need to, they do long term very well, we need to do long term. Us, you, the Japanese, are really very good at technology. The Japanese particularly very good at, oh, America very good, but Japanese also very good at technology. Uh, we've got to look at all the holes in our, our position and fill them. Biggest hole, critical minerals, we can fill it. The Japanese can, uh, can process it, so can the Americans. We just need to, there's stacks of stuff everywhere around the globe, but not in friendly hands. Uh, we are the ultimate friendly hands. That has got to be a centerpiece of the character of the relationship between the three of us and of August. Phil? Yeah, I, uh, you know, this is at the end of the day about ideology. I'm sorry to use the term, and for those smarter than me, the, you, you can parse this academically, but um, we have to remember that this discussion is not about Taiwan and the potential for conflict. It's about the long-term strategic strategy of China, which is to erode the international and operating norms in a way in which they can disrupt mm -hmm. the system, the international community of nations that has been in place for some 70 odd years and replace it with one of their own design. To us in America, really far away, um, you know, perhaps, um, uh, we believe that won't really affect us, but it will. Um, because I think ultimately the set of international norms that would come out would exclude us from the economic apparatus. And frankly, I think our allies would be forced to rethink their relationships with us along the way as part of China's mm. dictation of terms. Um, so we have to think about that. When I speak in America, you know, what does it take? You know, we're talking about how much money, how much time, all that other kind of stuff. What needs to go in in defenses, what needs to go in in our economic institutions, our relationships. It only takes the will. 
Yeah. And we need to really recognize what the trajectory is here and come together and work on that. Very proud to be alongside allies like Australia and Japan. Um, the liberal values, you know, our freedom from arbitrary restraint, you know, our willingness to honor the freedoms of our fellow citizens, you know, they are driving us together in a way in which we need to be uh, assured or we need to assure our populations that we are going to preserve those mm -hmm. freedoms. Um, one only need to look at what's happened in Tibet, in Hong Kong, in Xinjiang, along the line of actual control in the South China Sea to know that um, those, those freedoms are at risk. Yeah. And uh, we need to check this up. So that's why a policy of deterrence is so important here. So Evan mentioned uh, it feels like the 1950s. Um, uh, you know, history rhymes, it doesn't repeat. Of course, in the 1950s, U.S. trade with the Soviet Union was not even 1% of our trade. It's what, 13, 14% of our trade now is with China. <clears throat> For Australia, it's a third, roughly. Uh, Japan's up there. That's just different. Mm -hmm. um, is it the 1930s? Uh, the reality is in the 20s and 30s, um, we were quite economically interdependent with Germany, Japan, and Italy. Yeah. Um, we don't know. We don't know. I, my my uh, takeaway from this excellent discussion would be um, we do have to keep open the pathway for a more productive relationship. And there are Certainly. ways we can do it. Um, and the afternoon panel will talk about de-risking. Um, uh, we don't want to make the mistake of the 30s of shutting down uh, a, a trade with tariffs and things. Um, students and exchange really matter. Um, dialogue uh, matters. I know, of course, the Prime Minister is going to Beijing. Uh, the Biden administration has tried <laughs> um, uh, uh, to, uh, to ramp up uh, dialogue. We need to keep all of that and not foreclose options. That's critical. And then, as everyone said on this panel, and as we'll discuss this afternoon, um, our alliances and partnerships, which are um, much stronger than they were in the pre-war period. And, and much stronger than they were in the 50s. Mm. NATO was new, the US-Japan, US-Korea, and this yeah. alliance were new. The only ones we really had a long history of operating with were Australia, UK, New Zealand, Canada. Mm. And we were building new alliances. And we now have alliances that are substantive, that are, that are the polling shows, um, reinforced by common worldviews and values. And the countries are just stronger. And the countries right? are much I mean, stronger. Japan's it is a multipolar Asia. Um, and I, Evan, you've heard me often when we do our own U.S.-China dialogues, I emphasize to our counterparts from Chinese institutions um, who complain about small NATOs and blocks. I say this is actually good for U.S.-China competition because the U.S. is more dependent on allies. Just as allies are more dependent on the U.S., the U.S. has to listen to allies more. That's going to stabilize mm. uh, the competition. Um, allies and the U.S. dependence on allies in the current environment is actually not bad <laughs> for yeah. China. Mm. They don't believe me <laughs> necessarily, but I think right. it's true. It can be a source of ballast in the it relationship, can be a source of, right? Yeah. It can be a fire break on us doing provocative yep. things. But of course, our politicians, both in the executive branch and the legislature, have to be open to it, right? Yeah. We'll talk so about our politicians in a little while. <laughs> China is much harder than Russia or the yeah. Soviet Union. Yeah. Much, much harder. But there's one thing that they haven't done. I mean, I, I just talk about it from my political party. We were always aware of the Muscovite agents of disinformation inside our show. And they've now all disappeared. There's no Chinese-based set of agents of disinformation making life impossible. 
in the structure of our operations. So I'm assuming that that applies in other elements of politics around the globe. There's nothing there, no Chinese influence other than what can be bought. Um, there's no ideological Chinese influence. So we just need to bear in mind we're in a different Cold War. We are. And we can test those ideas now because we'll take a Very coffee break. Um, we'll come back at 11 o'clock to hear from Simon uh, Birmingham. Um, so coffee's out there, restrooms are on the side, but also straight back. Thank you for an excellent discussion. Thank you.